In, oh yeah, that's good. I like that. Uh, in 1863, Abraham Lincoln issued a document entitled A Proclamation Appointing to a National Fast Day. And he stated that he believed the Civil War was a chastisement from God for the sins of the nation. Boy, can you imagine the president saying that today? <laughs> he said, we have been the recipients of the choicest blessed bounties of heaven. We have been preserved there many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. Wow. What a statement. Yeah. Yeah. What a rebuke. But we're going to be looking at something similar to, to this with uh, Israel. What we uh, are about to read in the next three chapters chronicles uh, the same uh, kind of national tragedy that Lincoln spoke of, but with Israel. And in spite of all that God has done for his people, uh, once again, the Israelites forgot God. So, first of all, let's look at enjoying God's blessings. Enjoying God's grace, his mercies. We read, now after Abimelech died, Tola, the son of Pua, the son of Dodo, what a name, a man of Ishikar, rose up to deliver Israel. Now, Abimelech's brief reign, as we know, had disastrous effects on the tribes. He had suppressed the righteous, just like Proverbs says, and it, the scripture tells us in so many different ways. In Proverbs 28, 28, when the wicked rise, men hide themselves. But when they perish, the righteous increase. Now, Abimelech was an evil ruler. He was self-appointed ruler. And uh, he was a self, not only a self-appointed ruler, but uh, he was... In his evilness, he uh, eliminated the ones who were dissatisfied with him. He just got rid of everybody that uh, didn't agree with him and caused him any kind of injury. Except one woman who was on the uh, tower who they were, he was burning down and she dropped a rock on his head and a stone. And, and so he was about to die and he didn't want his uh, epitaph to read uh, death caused by a woman dropping a stone on my head. So what he did was he asked his uh, swordsman to finish him off with his sword. And so this happened, but the epitaph still is there, isn't it? We know what happened. Now the suppressed Israelites are sent a judge. And some list these judges that we're talking about as minor judges because why? Of the lack of information. Just like in the Bible, the minor prophets, because it's less you know, information mentioned doesn't mean that they're any less, does it? It just means that there's less information about it. And so we see the first one, Tola. And it says that he was the son of Pua, the son of Dodo, a man of Ishikar. We know nothing else about him. His name means worm. But don't take that in a negative sense. It probably uh, meant humility and lowliness of character. And so he was from uh, Shamir, 
which was another name that's unknown. Uh, very little is known about the village. Some think that since it has the same three consonants uh, in Hebrew as Samaria, that it's the same place, Samaria. And it's in the same area, uh, central uh, location there. And so uh, they believe that it's the same, it means the same uh, thing. And uh, it says that he lived in Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim, which was that area. And the phrase places it in the general location of Samaria. So Tola was a man from Ishakar. And it has been said that men from Ishakar uh, were noted for what? Their wisdom. So that was something to be noted for, wisdom. Understanding the times with knowledge of what Israel should do, it says in 1 Chronicles 12, 32. These people from Ishakar. So it would seem that Tola possessed this quality because we're told that he arose, it says in verse 1, to save Israel. He arose to save Israel. So as he did, uh, we look at the word saved and it can either mean to give width and breadth or to uh, liberate, one of the two. And when it's used with the Hebrew uh, qualifying term, and that uh, is mayad, then it implies to save from the hand of someone or something. But here it's not mentioned with the qualifying word, so it probably is preserving existence. The existence that God allowed them, and that was peace during this time, prosperity. He preserved it. So in verse 2, we're told that he judged Israel 23 years, died and was buried in Shamir. Now, it would seem that Tola, a, um, a good and humble man, that he ruled quietly. We don't know anything else about him. He ruled quietly, but effectively for 23 years. Dr. Uh, Fassett uh, points out in his commentary that Tola kept Israel from idolatry for 23 years while he was in office. He must have had profound influence on the people during his reign. He left Israel better than he found it, and that's something good to say, isn't it? So that is a mighty good thing to be remembered for. Dr. Webb speaks of a church he attended at one time, and they were going through a deep crisis. Uh, the pastor had served for 15 years and who achieved a, a great a number of things for the kingdom of God uh, during that time left in circumstances that bewildered the church and discouraged the church that they were really downtrodden. And so uh, many left the church because of this, not knowing what was going on and why, and those that remained found it hard to recover. So uh, then a quiet man with uh, no gr big grandeur uh, of a vision came in as, uh, for one year. And he began preaching. And his wife and he began to minister. He just offered the grace of God to him, Not with any big vision. And they once again were able to, through this time, begin to lift their heads up and start hoping in God again. So uh, they began to once again pull together in unity and oneness. And what was supposed to be just one year ended up being three years. And then this man with his wife, after nourishing them, 
and restoring them back to the unity that they needed and the faith that they needed, then God using them that way, then they left and went to another church of similar condition. Preacher was quiet, yes. Humble, yes. Caring, yes. Sacrificial, yes. Priceless, yes. And it seems like Tola must have been something of same character. They uh, may not be flashy and they may not be self-promoting like a lot of people are, but their reward will be great in heaven. You see, Tola saved Israel from disintegrating after what? After Abimelech, didn't he? And so uh, with a steady hand to the plow, he kept moving forward, quietly, sacrificially. And it seemed that God graced Israel with a judge um, totally opposite of that of Abimelech. And God graced Israel with peace and prosperity, it says, for 23 years under his leadership. Then there was a man from Gilead. If you'll look with me, it says, and after him, Jer, the uh, Gileadite, arose and judged Israel 22 years. He had 30 sons. I want to tell you, with 30 sons, it's not likely that it was just by one wife. He probably had a number of wives. Who rode on 30 donkeys. In other words, they all had Mercedes. And they had 30 cities. They all had their Athens to rule. In the land of Gilead. That are called Havath Jar to this day. And Jair, Jair died and was buried in Canaan there in Judges 10, 3 through 5. So following Tola's death, the Gileadite became the leader of God's people. Now, not much is said about him. His home was east of Jordan and territory that was allotted to the half-tribe of Manasseh in Numbers chapter 32 and verse 41 and uh, Deuteronomy 3.14. But before entering the promised land under the uh, leadership, this is why they were over there on the other side of the promised land, before entering the promised land under the leadership of Joshua, some of the tribes saw that the property that they were crossing through was a decent property to live in. And so after defeating the uh, Amorites, the kings there in Deuteronomy 2, 26 through 3, 22, it was excellent for grazing and, and they decided to stay. And only after helping though the other tribes could they stay, conquer their territory west of the Jordan. And so uh, uh, we see that this is where he was occupied there. Now in Numbers 32, Gilead was a place that promised prosperity and those that received it as their inheritance had good prospects there uh, for living. So one of his ancestors had conquered certain towns, it seems like, in Gilead and had called them Havath Jer which it means uh, the villages of Jer. And so Jer was apparently a man of wealth and influence among the eastern tribes suggested by what is said about him in verse 4 it says 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys and had 30 cities. Suggested by what is said in verse 4 
it was a time of uh, peace and prosperity for them to have those cities and to rule over them. So this was a time to enjoy. This was a time to thank God for. However, it was also a time that presented its dangers. With prosperity and with peace, many times comes danger. Some of those dangers are evidenced by the way that Jer is described here. He said he had 30 sons who rode 30 donkeys and they had 30 cities in the land of Gilead that are called Havath Jer to this day. The description of his family and how they lived here implies that he probably succumbed to uh, some of the dangers that come with prosperity and peace. In other words, 30 sons who rode 30 donkeys with 30 cities they governed. So 30 sons implies that he probably had more than one wife like Gideon and perhaps had the uh, same secret desire to be a king or at least to have the trappings of, of royalty there. And uh, 30 sons with 30 cities. Uh, his flirtation with the same thing is that uh, Gideon, you know, had that he flirted with uh, might have opened up the time of prosperity and peace that he was going through to uh, allow problems and difficulties to come in and temptations. You see, grooming sons to be the successors regardless of their suitability to, uh, for high office demonstrates that there could be abuse of power there. I mean, you know, he could be keeping it in there and, and wanting the wealth and prosperity primarily for himself and not for Israel. It seems that he used the wealth and prosperity that came his way more to advance his interests and his family and their welfare than the welfare of the nation. So each son rode a donkey and only wealthy families could provide their children with their own personal donkey. And, and riding donkeys and mules bespoke of wealth and security and, uh, you know, royalty at that time. And that is what happened here. And so the style of his rule hints at the unpreparedness, uh, I guess you'd say, of Israel for the disaster that was about to befall them. It says, And the anger of the Lord, anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he sowed them into the hands of the Philistines, in verse 7, and the hands of the sons of Ammon. You see, uh, Jair's uh, pampered sons uh, will be uh, of little use when the uh, Ammonites uh, invade. They just won't be prepared for it. And then the uh, Gileanites will find themselves or, uh, without any effective leadership. And, and they will seek desperately for a fighter, for someone to come and uh, help them out. So the second thing that we need to look at are the opportunities and dangers that come with blessings and peace and prosperity. Then the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, it says. They served Baals and the Asherah and the gods of Aaron and the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the sons of Ammon and the gods of the Philistines. Thus they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. And the anger of the Lord 
burned against Israel. And he sold them into the hands of the Philistines, in the hands of the sons of Ammon. You know, circumstances of uh, Christian communities and individual believers, they vary uh, greatly, don't they? I mean, you look at them, for some, life is full of crisis. I mean, you say, man, that person just goes through one crisis after another. And it's a daily struggle to survive, it seems like. But then there's others that uh, all that they experience uh, and all that they have to deal with is just the necessities of life. And uh, they live fairly in safe, uh, safe environments, you would say, and, and they, uh, they have very little disturbance. And if it's any disturbance, it's infrequent at all. But that does not involve the normal everyday uh, troubles that, uh, that all of us face, like, you know, stress, sickness, relationship problems, aging, bereavement, and death, those type things. But we see that there's differences in, in situations with different peoples. And, but we can thank God for the interludes that come our way during those stressful times that he allows us to experience which we can see life more relaxed during that time and more manageable even sometimes you wonder how in the world is it going you know we're going to be able to manage this at all these are the gifts from god to be enjoyed and and uh, to be thankful to him for sometimes interludes may come in the form of vacations or, or ship, uh, short trips just getting away, having that time together and enjoying yourself. But at other times, it's God that intervenes, it seems like, in a special way. Uh, and he delivers us in a special way. Like he lifts our burdens and he gives us rest. And we can definitely say these are times that God has given us and they're gifts from God. And this is the kind of interlude that is found in Judges after the reign of Abimelech. The prosperity and peace that they were experiencing, God had brought it into it, into their lives. It was a divine intervention. It wasn't a vacation that they went off on or it wasn't a trip. It was just that divine intervention. He saw that they needed that rest. But with these interluding gifts comes the opportunities and challenges to be faithful to God. To remember where those interludes come from. And Israel needed rest from the chaos and the horrors of Abimelech's rule. And it suddenly appeared for them. And it was not, uh, you know, the wise planning of Abimelech or anybody else during that time. It was just something that God brought about by bringing Abimelech's disastrous reign to an end. And so with this interlude came opportunities and challenges. It gave them an opportunity for healing. And we need that time for healing a lot of times. You know, where we've just been hurt and we've just been downtrodden and we've just been beat up. And we just need that time. Seemed to come by way of Tola. Much like the healing by the pastor and wife that I mentioned that went to that church to hurt, help the hurting church. Also, there's the opportunity for planning for the future. With this, uh, you know, this beautiful 
uh, interlude comes the opportunity for the future. It involves careful planning, if you will. There are times for leaders to remind their people of what they're called to be and, and what they're called to do and try to prepare them for that. And these times are times where you equip people, leaders and, and uh, others with values and skills to go forward with the Lord and to remain faithful and always be thankful unto the Lord. Now let's just pause for a moment. We've been seeing people talk about outreach and we're trying to get better at that. We've been talking about leadership and, and uh, uh, guidance and uh, Sunday school working through that and with the deacons and different things like that. We're working on that. It's exciting to see new people, new faces come into the church. Amen. And some of them come back even. I mean, my goodness, that's wonderful. And more than once. That's exciting. But let me tell you, may we never enter that interlude where we don't continue to be faithful for the Lord. We need to, as one person mentioned in a meeting just recently, play all four quarters and not just one or two. We don't need to let up. And we need to remain truly thankful, realizing who has allowed that, right? Any growth that comes in here he, yes, he uses vessels and he uses uh, activities that we have and, and ministries that we have. But who is the main source? It's God, isn't it? And we better remember that. And we better stay on our knees being thankful to him and praying for his guidance and help. Challenges that come with opportunities. Here, the challenge of not being lulled into a false sense of security. With prosperity, God's people can be lulled into a life of self-indulgence and forgetfulness. With forgetfulness comes a life of self-focus. Man, is our world really fitting into that mode, self-focus. We forget God. Not totally, but by the way we live, our planning, our living uh, is not spirit-centered, but self-centered. Living is for the here and now and not eternity. We forget about the eternity. We're just thinking about the now. The pursuit of good life, which is thought of mainly in terms of the material and is... Uh, and social advancement becomes an end in itself. There is a challenge to walk by faith and not once again by sight. We so often begin to walk by sight. We're lulled in to that lukewarmness. The result is that when the next crisis comes, it finds them and those that they lead woefully unprepared. And it did with Israel. 
Good times have their hazards just as bad times do. And the dangers of peace and prosperity are more insidious because they are less obvious and they come upon us gradually. They slip in. That's how Satan works. Do you think there's not the battle between the good and the evil? Between God and Satan? I mean, Satan's not on the same level as God, I know, but there is that battle going on. Do you think he's going to come full force in on you? Maybe at times to disrupt you, but gradually he loves to do that. To get us lulled into our sleep. To get us to the point of compromise even. So Jer might have seen his lifestyle as innocent, the simple enjoyment of God given prosperity, but it, it led to an excess that did not seem good for him and those he led. In other words, he was a bad example to others. And what do we do when we're lulled into that condition? We become a bad example for others. Churches pastored by such men may become large and prosperous. Now, I'm not talking about all churches that are large and prosperous. But those that wrongly acquire it, they will not be spiritually strong and will not be able to stand when hard times come. They just won't. They will compromise. Compromise and sin will take them over. It never fails. You read that in the Bible. You see it in the end. You see it with the Laodicean church. Compromise. With these interludes, there are good times to enjoy, opportunities to seize, to work. There's work to be done, challenges to face, and, but also along with that, dangers to be avoided. One day there'll be a judgment. People may not believe it today, but it doesn't matter what people don't believe. It's coming, and there's going to be a judgment. The people of Israel did not take advantage of these years of peace and prosperity to grow in their relationship with the Lord. And then after the death of Jer, the nation openly returned to what? Idolatry. Once again, inviting the chastening of the Lord. They enjoyed, now just think, Count up those years of those two minor, if you will, judges, what some call minor. Forty-five years of peace and prosperity. Wow. Forty-five years of peace and prosperity. But they didn't take time during that time to thank the Lord. Matter of fact, there's a lot of things that enter in. Idolatry. The, uh, the essence of idolatry is enjoying God's gifts, blessings, but not being grateful to the giver, which Israel was definitely guilty of. If Israel had only learned from their past, they would not be in the predicament that they were in at this time. Israel's sin was found in three verbs, served, deserted, or forsook, and did not serve. Dr. Wiseman once says this about the, uh, the Israelites. Their repentance to God, though general and perhaps for the moment sincere, were only transit. Israel 
not only returned to their own ways, but addicted themselves, and here's the key, to new and various forms of idolatry. They exceeded the folly of the neighboring heathens who were content with worshiping their own national deities. They served Baalism and Ashtoreth. The new generation preferred a religion here that appealed to the senses. They found the worship of God too limiting. In other words, it just didn't fit into their thinking. They wanted to come up with their own. This was the sixth time we see the Israelites turning their backs on the living and true God. And giving themselves to pagan gods. You see, they had seen God's hand miraculously revealed through Gideon. They had seen the disaster and apostasy of Abimelech. They had experienced peace and prosperity with Tola and Zer. But they still turned away from God. Each time they did evil in the sight of God and chose paganism over God's truth. They sank each time, though, lower and lower than the first time. I mean, it, it's an endless cycle, but the endless cycle is, is like, okay, here it is. And they get smaller and smaller and smaller, further away from God with each one. And in Judges 10, they reach one of the bleakest times spiritually in the nation's history. They are worshiping almost any and everything rather than the Lord. They had come to that. There are seven false uh, religions mentioned here, and they include some of the most perverted and depraved practices ever known to man. Every part of the country is involved, it says. They all forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So what happens? Well, you know, nothing catches the Lord by accident. He sees everything, so in turn... There's discipline from the Lord. Look in chapter 11, verses 6 through 9. Then the, uh, let me see here. Chapter 10, verses 6 through 9, excuse me. Then the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, served the Baals and Astra. Thus they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. And the angel of the Lord burned against Israel, and he sold them uh, into the hands of the Philistines and to the hands of the sons of Ammon. And they afflicted all the sons of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the Gilead in the land of the Amorites. And the sons of Ammon crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah, Benjamin, and the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was greatly distressed. Now, as, as we look at this, when God is chastening us, we're suffering because of what? Our sins, aren't we? And it's easy to cry out to him at that time for deliverance and make all kinds of promises. But when we are comfortable in enjoying God's blessings as they were before this, we tend to forget God and assume that we can sin and get away with it. How often we do that as Christians. Comfortable living produces weak character so often. 
We're to have a godly character, a character that is built when we make the right decisions in life. Those decisions are made on the basis of things we value most. And what do we value most? I mean, we can look at the decisions that we're making today in the church today here in America and, and all over the world. What are those decisions being based on? Those decisions are based on what is most important to us in our life. And so, since Israel did not value things of God, she ended up destroying her national character and opening herself up for the discipline of God. This time God sent the Philistines and the Ammonites to chasten Israel. And the Ammonites were distant relatives of Jews, being descendants of Abraham's nephew Lot in Genesis 19. Their army invaded the uh, area of Gilead on the east side of the Jordan and then crossed the river and attacked Judah, Ephraim, and Benjamin. And it was humiliating and devastating for the Israelites. And it says, And the angel of the Lord burned against Israel, and he, he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and to the hands of the sons of Ammon. And they were afflicted and crushed the sons of Israel, that year. For 18 years they afflicted all the sons of Israel who were beyond the Jordan and the Gilead and the land of Amorites. So there, what happened? There was a call for repentance. They didn't need God before then, it seems like. When we're going about business and we're forgetting God, then we don't think that we need God. When we're enjoying so, so often the things of this world and, and the blessings of this world, we forget that they're blessings from God and we just go on about our business and we forget about God. We need to stay on our knees praying. We need to remember that God is a God that brought about this. That he's the source of all these wonderful blessings. That he's the source of the grace that we're experiencing each and every day. And we need to thank him each and every day. Then the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against thee, for indeed we have forsaken our God and served the Baals. Okay, that's good, isn't it? Not so fast. And the Lord said to the sons of Israel, Did I not deliver you from the Egyptians, from the Amorites, from the sons of Ammon, from the Philistines? Also, when the uh, Sidonians and the uh, Amalekites and the uh, Maonites oppressed you, you cried out to me. And I delivered you from their hands. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore I will deliver you no more. Well, they're crying out to God. And he's not delivering. What's going on? Go cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in the time of your distress. In other words, there's a difference and we'll talk about it in just a moment, just briefly, but there's a difference between regret and repentance, isn't there? There is. A lot of times we regret, we have sorrow, but we don't have true repentance. And so in turn, the Lord is trying to let them know, hey, don't play the game with me. I know what you've done in the past. What I require is for you to see who the true God is and what he wants you to do. And so they began to, as he presented his case, it says, and the sons of Israel said to the Lord, we have sinned 
do to us whatever seems good to thee. But could you please deliver us this day? <laughs> so they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord, and he could bear the misery of Israel no longer. I want you to underline that. I want you to highlight it, whatever you need to do. People tell me that God is a God of justice and, and he's a mean God of the Old Testament. I want to tell you, he's a God of grace. Amen? You look at that. That is telling us that he is a God of grace. He could bear the misery of Israel no longer. It broke his heart. He wanted them delivered. He didn't want them to go into bondage. The only reason he sent them there is so that they could truly be delivered and experience his grace and mercy. And then the sons of Ammon were summoned and they camped in Gilead and the sons of Israel gathered together and camped in Mizpah. And the people and the leaders of Gilead said to one another, Who is the man who will begin the fight against the sons of Ammon? He shall become head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So they're looking for a leader, which we'll talk about next week. But I want you to just look a little bit further with me briefly before we close. When God put Israel's back against the wall, and our backs are against the wall, when we see that we have nowhere else to turn, and that's what they did. And they cried out to God. But God wanted them to see why their backs were against the wall. Not just to cry out in regret for what they did because they got caught or whatever. And, and it's like a child getting caught, you know, and they're regretful that they got caught. But hey, they're going to do it again. There's no repentance. There's a difference between regret and repentance. Did they not repent when they called out, Lord, we have sinned? No, not fully. God saw that. It seems that the Israelites cried out in regret instead of repentance. For the Lord replied, listen, I am not going to help you. You turn away from me to other gods, basically is what he's saying. And if you want help, you go to them. Well, they're not helping us. Okay. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 10. I now rejoice. Not that you were made sorrowful, regretful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God. That's what God wants. In order that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance. Without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow, the regret of the world produces death. Regret touches the emotions. It may go no deeper than that. Just touching the emotions. We read that Judas regretted that he had, what he had done. But we see no repentance. But repentance involves a change of mind, a change of will. You can have repentance without sorrow, but you, uh, and you can have sorrow without repentance. Regret is remorse over the consequences of an act. Repentance involves 
a reordering of our lives around God, a changing according to his will, seeing things as he sees them. From the context, it's clear that Israel viewed God as a cosmic parent, if you will. They tried to manipulate using the end to justify the means. This, I'm afraid, is the reason that many of us, even Christians, have never known God at work in our lives. Not the way that we should. Because we really don't know repentance. Now, I'm not saying we're not born again. I'm just saying the power of God in our lives. Until we deal on a radical level with our sin in the presence of God and fill our minds with God and his truth and we act upon it, we will not know his power, I'm afraid. The Lord's refusal to respond to superficial regret drove the Israelites to examine their hearts more deeply and that's what we need more deeply Lord reveal it to me like I've told you before over and over again Dr. Level when he was leaving he said you know the reason we're not experiencing more revivals I truly believe is we're not really having a heart to repent go cry out to the gods which you have chosen let them deliver you in a time of distress where they found out that they had really sinned. Their gods were the gods that they had been worshiping along with Yahweh, if they were worshiping Yahweh, were not true gods. And so they were put they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. He could bring uh, he could bear the misery of Israel no more. And as I said, this disproves anyone who says that God of the Old Testament is only a God of justice and discipline. Here we see a God of incessant love and infinite mercy. He is a God of grace. God's grace manifests itself in, in giving Israel the initiative and courage to draw up their forces at Mizpah and to do battle against the Ammonites. And they needed uh, a leader, and God had one ready for them. They just didn't know who. He had been preparing it. They didn't know it. This is time that they'll find out that it's God's choice and not man's choice. It wasn't an Abimelech who chose to be their leader. It was God who's choosing someone to be their leader. Their hope was not really in their repenting or, or their praying, but in the character of God. We can depend on God, can't we? I mean, it's not how hard we pray, how much we pray. We need to. And we need to be earnest in our prayer. And God looks at the sincerity through all of that, but Still, it's the character of God. When God asked us to do these things, he's going to come through with his word, isn't he? And so his soul was grieved for the misery of Israel. And in Isaiah, we see something similar in 63, verse 9. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. He's a God of mercy and grace. Same God. Nevertheless, in your great mercy, in uh, Nehemiah 9.31, you did not utterly consume them nor forsake them, for you are God, gracious and merciful. Old Testament God, same as New Testament. And then Psalm 78, verse 38. Yet he was merciful. He atoned for their iniquities and did not destroy them. Time after time, he restrained his anger and did not stir up his full wrath. Oh, what a wonderful and awesome God we have. 
So the Israelites, number one, they acknowledged their sin. They had forsaken the true God and served Baal. God tells them, go and cry out to their gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver. They found out, hey, we've made a big mistake. We've been sinning. Their repentance is demonstrated, not just voiced. In other words, they didn't just voice it. They, they went out and they got rid of these so-called gods. Confession of their sins to the Lord. They bared their backs for punishment. Whatever you may do, Lord, you do. Please deliver so. They put away their idols representing final gods and our foreign gods, and they serve the Lord. They serve the Lord. True repentance. Nowhere is grace and mercy of God and his intense love for Israel more clearly revealed than in this situation. We see that he could bear the misery of Israel no longer. Adam Clark writes, God grieves for the miseries to which his creatures are reduced by their own sin. We have a wonderful God, don't we? May we be a people who in the time of prosperity and peace, who live in a, in a country like this and have so many blessings, may we be a people, a church, a community of believers who consistently, who daily, thanks God and recognizes him as the one who should be in control of our life, who has blessed us with all that we have, and we desire to keep our lives intact with what he wants us to live, or how he wants us to live, what he wants us to be. May we daily spend time with him to recognize that, and may we thank him. That he is a God of grace and mercy. He doesn't give us what we deserve. And he gives us what we don't deserve. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.